Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. Good morning. It's 830. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, Governor Phil Bryant makes his predictions on the new legislative session. We need, of course, to continue to provide adequate services like law enforcement, funding education at the highest level than ever before. And you'll see uh, additional, um, I think, work this year on how we go about consolidating some state agencies to be able to save money and add more efficiency to state government. Find out what he says about spending all that BP settlement money. Plus, Mississippi is getting a D in education, but find out why K-12 leaders say we're headed in the right direction. And in the book club, looking back at the great flood of 1927. That's all coming up. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Lawmakers are at the state capitol this week setting the framework for next year's budget. There have already been budget cuts in the current fiscal year, and state agencies are nervous there could be more. Almost everyone says the budget adopted by this legislature will be a lean one, but Governor Phil Bryant says it all depends on how you look at it. He spoke with MPB's Mark Rigsby. What are your hopes for this session? Well, I think people need to realize that the budget is the primary responsibility of the legislature, so we're looking at the budget. We'll spend uh, roughly $300 million more this session than we did my first session in 2012 as governor. So the idea that somehow these uh, draconian cuts that have been made uh, is just uh, nonsense. Uh, That $300 million increase is uh, about 3.5% above the rate of inflation. Uh, And so more money is being spent on government than ever before. We need to sort of pump the brakes on that and realize that that type of spending cannot continue. But we need, of course, to continue to provide adequate services like law enforcement, funding education at the highest level than ever before. And you'll see uh, additional, um, I think, work this year on how we go about consolidating some state agencies to be able to save money and add more efficiency to state government. You mentioned education. The Ed Build recommendations have not come back to the to, to lawmakers yet. Um, what are your hopes for those recommendations coming back from this organization that has uh, been tasked to look at possibly changing the funding formula for MAEP? Well, I think it was a mistake to make it a dictatorial law, and that is by saying that you must fund MAEP. Uh, one legislator should not put that burden on future legislators. When that was uh, done several years ago, that bill was passed several years ago, it said the legislature must fully fund MAEP. That would say that an unelected 
citizen who later got elected to the legislature was bound by that law. We shouldn't do that when it comes to appropriations because we never exactly know what's going to happen or the revenue will be at the projected numbers or not, what the economy will do on a global scale. Uh, and so I expect Ed Bill to come back with some really good recommendations. This is the first or second day of a 90-day session, so people should stop panicking over the fact that it may take several more weeks before the Ed Bill report comes in. Uh, we've always looked at outside sources to be able to provide uh, unbiased information. I think that's what they'll do. Do you think this is going to be another tight state budget year? Oh, no doubt about it. Now, again, tight is a relevant term. So you'll see uh, members that are um, within the bureaucracy of government, within education, saying we need more money. Again, people need to realize we're spending $300 million more this session than we did in 2012. I don't know many companies that have grown by three times the rate of inflation, and that's what government spending has done in Mississippi. A lot has been said about trying to develop momentum to pass meaningful uh, legislation when it comes to infrastructure improvements. Mm. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I think, again, you've got to look at where the revenue is coming from. Uh, we're spending hundreds of millions of dollars on infrastructure now. We're literally uh, in about the top 15 in the nation for infrastructure uh, just now, according to the U.S. Department of Transportation. Uh, so, again, this uh, narrative that the roads are crumbling and bridges are dangerous, there's, there's certainly a responsibility we have to maintain that. Uh, but I think we need to, again, wait to see what the federal government is going to do. The Trump administration said there will be a big effort on infrastructure. So if we pass some omnibus bill now and then find out the federal government has passed something not consistent with what we want, I think it would be, uh, it would be uh, a bad uh, idea and a, a mistake to be able to set that type of president before we see what the federal government is going to do. All right, some quick topics here. Civil asset forfeiture, where do you stand on that? Oh, I think the law enforcement should be in charge of that. I think now the system that we have is very good. I think it's a, a very consistent idea of uh, finding those that violate the law and taking their uh, the gains of their criminal activities away from them. I would definitely leave it at the local level. Campaign finance reform. I think we'll pass something this year. I think it's important to have as much transparency as you possibly can. I think we need to be careful in our rush not to make something criminal uh, that has been a common practice. But uh, I am certainly for making a more accountable system, and I think you'll see that. BP oil spill settlement money, should it stay on the coast or should it be spread out through the oh, state? it should be absolutely on the Gulf Coast. I was there. Um, the oil came ashore on the Gulf Coast. The damage was affected there. Um, this is something that I think you'll hear a great, a good deal uh, of debate about, but it should be at the Mississippi Gulf Coast. Funding a trooper school for highway patrol. Need it desperately. Uh, every Christmas and New Year's, any holiday, uh, we look at how many troopers we can put on the road, and we're constantly concerned that if we can't try to control the speed, if we can't try to control violations of the state trafficking law, someone is going to get killed or injured. We need more troopers on the road. And finally, your thoughts on the state's bicentennial. Uh, it's, it's the greatest celebration that we'll have in the last 200 years. Uh, you will see uh, events that are taking place all over the state of Mississippi. We'll be opening brand-new museums in December. It is a wonderful time for us to go and brag about Mississippi, what we've done over the last 200 years. Uh, remember the difficult times, but also look at the bright future that we anticipate. Governor, thanks for your time today. We do appreciate it. Thank you so much. Glad to be with you. 
Governor Phil Bryant with MPB's Mark Rigsby. You can hear from the governor, legislative leaders, and more this week on At Issue. The new season starts this Friday evening at 7.30 on MPB TV. The state's public education leader is sending a positive message to legislators about K-12 education. Hear what she has to say next. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Hi, I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart. Join me each Thursday for Southern Remedy Kids and Teens on MPB Think Radio. Each week we talk with you about the health issues that are facing your children. From acne to concussions to diaper rashes and tonsils, from potty training to allergies to braces and everything in between. It's Mississippi's free weekly pediatric clinic on the radio. Listen to any of our episodes on demand through the MPB Public Radio app and online at mpbonline.org. Southern Remedy Kids and Teens, this morning at 11 on MPB Think Radio. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. Educational outcomes are an area of great concern in Mississippi for legislators and citizens alike. In this year's state report card from K-12 news outlet Education Week, Mississippi received a D. But State Superintendent of Education Carrie Wright says Mississippi is headed in the right direction. She spoke to our Desiree Frazier after reporting to the House Education Committee. Well, you know, there's a several things. You know, one obviously is all the work we've been doing in early childhood. I mean, we've produced a ton of documents to help not only those that are in public pre-K, but those that are in private pre-K and the professional development that goes along with all that. Um, our Literacy-Based Promotion Act, all the work we've done with our literacy coaches, that is paying off in tremendously, and that's why you've got everybody asking for math coaches because they know how successful our literacy coaches have been. And I'm really proud of our advanced placement and our dual credit dual enrollment because that's opened opportunities for children that would never have had those opportunities. We've got a lot of bright children in the state that need those opportunities. So those would be the, the three that I would probably go to first. But we've done an awful lot with CTE and opening What's CTE? our career technical education. Uh, years ago it was called VOTEC. We're not, that's not the term uh, because it really is a career pathway for those children. So that if they don't want to go to a two-year, four-year university, they can graduate with a certification that gets them a high-wage job. And so that's what we're working on now with that group, too. You talked about the dropout rate, that it's the lowest it's been in five years. Yes, down to 11.8. We, at one time, were above 16, and so that has really come down um, significantly, just as our uh, graduation rate is the highest it's ever been at 80.8. So we've done both. We're keeping kids in school and getting them across the stage, which is what we want to do. What do you attribute that to? I think a lot of the reform work, no doubt. A lot of our professional development, no doubt. Um, the resources that we've been providing teachers, um, I think, has really paid off. Uh, and opening up, like I just said, opportunities that kids did not have before. And I think if you can keep kids engaged, you can keep them in school. And I think that's really what we're trying to do is think about how do we design instructional programs that are exciting, just like our computer science um, pilot that we started and all these kids are getting, getting involved in coding and I mean it's just like you it's opening up worlds that they may not have you know, existed. What did you want to get across to lawmakers? Um, a that their reform the legislation that they passed is um, is producing the results that they wanted and B that there's an awful lot of work that goes on outside those pieces of legislation um, that also helps the reform work and helps improve um, outcomes for children and so I think for me it's a great partnership to partner with our legislators um, to say, you did this, it, it's working, uh, we're implementing it with fidelity, we're getting the results, and by the way, with the other monies that you've given us, here's something else.
else that we're doing um, to help children as well. In terms of funding, the Ed Bill report hasn't come out. Right. Are you awaiting that anxiously? Yeah, I'm anxious to see what I think one of their recommendations, obviously, I think is going to be around weighted student formula, and I think that that makes perfect sense. What does that mean? Um, it means assigning um, extra weight to children such as children with disabilities or students that do not speak English. So instead of just giving the dollar per dollar, if, you, if you're a student that is a student with a disability, you might get a dollar fifty. So that um, because it's more expensive to educate children with disabilities and English language learners, um, and even gifted children really, than it is um, children who do not have those um, those talents. So uh, what I think that's what she's trying to look at to make it more equitable. I've got is I, that's why I said I've got a superintendent that's saying he's got fourteen percent of his population that's English language learners, and I've got another one that has zero. And the, the same would hold true for special education. And so it's just more expensive. And I think what she's trying to figure out is a way to is a way to offer something like that as a suggestion. Education hasn't been fully funded, and um, now you're looking at another report. How do you adjust to this? Well, I think I'm going to await the report to see kind of what the significant differences between our current formula and the recommendations that she's making, um, because I don't really know how they differ yet until I see the report. And once I see the report, I'll be happy to respond to that. Superintendent of Education Kerry Wright. Brandon Republican John Moore chairs the House Education Committee. He tells MPB's Desiree Frazier he's pleased with the news from Dr. Wright. As I was sitting there, I was almost in amazement at how much we have done and how far we have come in the last four or five years. Through, through the reform measures and the actual passage of those, those, uh, those pieces of legislation, and the, the, the process by which we had to, to, to go through to, to get it to the governor's desk for him to sign. And then the, the way the Department of Education actually took the ball at that point and have implemented every one of those, uh, those measures without any pushback whatsoever. And I'm just as proud as I can be for the children and for the taxpayers of the state of Mississippi because every indicator is going in the right direction. Give us an example of something that stood out to you. Uh, well, the fact that our ACT scores are going up, our dropout rates are going down, the reading scores are going up, the math scores are going up, and uh, there are, uh, the early the uh, reading initiative that we fought for and passed here is actually proving out to be, as we said, a, a to start with, the, the game changer in our education. It's a, the, our reading numbers are going up and the number of kindergarten children that are actually ready to go uh, when, they, when they enter the first grade is rising dramatically. Funding is a constant issue. Oh, yeah, in terms funding. of fully funding education for the state, it hasn't been done under MAEP. Now you've got EdBuild. Your feelings about where the state is going with funding? Well, I think that the, you can say what you want to, I'll, I'll let the record speak for it. We've had the largest increases in K-12 funding in history under the, under the Republican leadership in Mississippi, and we have de uh, designated that money to the areas where it was needed, and I think you're going to see more and more of that. There's nothing in anybody's mind about backing up. Uh, we need to have more money going into the classrooms. We need to have more money going to where it actually improves education in Mississippi, and I think you're going to see more of that. How much are we spending this year? Well, the, the, we're starting the budget this year with where we were last year. Uh, and the total is going to be somewhere in the neighborhood of $2.5 billion. I know the, the formula itself calls for about $2.4 billion. We've been actually physically overfunding the formula while we were being cussed by everybody 
for the last five years. How can that be? Well, if the formula calls for $2.4 billion and you're putting in $2.5 billion, explain that to me how it can be called underfunding. But critics say it hasn't met that. The only thing that's different is it comes in two parts. It comes, you have the MAEP and then you have the, the other stuff that goes out to the districts. Nobody wants to count that money. And I'll just give you a list of things. Uh, the amount of money spent for special needs children, the national board supplements for teachers, the teacher supply money, the money that we spend to uh, to pay for ACT tests for all the students, that's $2 million a year. Uh, the educable child, the special needs money, that's $15 million a year. That's $15 million for reading coaches. Uh, every bit of that money flows directly out to the districts, but it's not counted as education spending. Uh, now we're hearing that 425 use the uh, scholarships right, to go to private schools, but over 200. Well, no, that, no that's, that's incorrect. Uh, they did not use it to go to private schools. They used the 400 the, the scholarship money to provide services for their children. Now, whether they went to the professional or private or where they went is fine. They didn't necessarily send them to private schools. Uh, and, uh, of course, I've heard the same numbers you were talking about in there. Uh, up to this point in this scholarship year, there have only been 288 of the 400 or 200 higher. 74, I believe. Yeah, 274 of the parents that have actually applied for reimbursement. And I think she called it a delta in there is what the, where there's, there's monies that are committed but the parents have not applied for it yet, and which is, is fine. You know, it's there for their use. And the, the, a lot of the, the bill is, is open and closed enough that the parents have to use it for services specific to their child. And, I, you know, I think by the end of the year, you will see most of them have used it. House Education Chair John Moore with MPB's Desiree Frazier. Coming up in our book club, a look back at the Great Flood of 1927. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Kara Miller. Every week on Innovation Hub, I talk with the thinkers, researchers, and visionaries who are crafting our future. Tune in to hear conversations about how tribalism shapes us, what new research on obesity reveals, how chicken changed America, and why math class should be reinvented. Coming Sunday, January 8th at noon, hear Innovation Hub on MPB Think Radio. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Ninety years ago, in 1927, a great flood buried some 27,000 square miles in water up to 30 feet high. Most of those affected by the flooding were in Arkansas, Louisiana, and here in Mississippi. In this week's book club, we talked to author Susan Scott Parrish, who writes about the flood in her book, The Flood Year, 1927. Commercial Appeal, the newspaper in Memphis, called it the greatest disaster that ever afflicted our country. And one Louisiana newspaper called it the greatest of all floods since the days of Noah. So it was a, ma- it was a major wow. inundation that really started in the winter or even fall of 1926. It ended up covering about 27,000 square miles. Parts of seven different states were inundated. But the worst of the flooding was in Mississippi, Arkansas, and Louisiana. Um, and a little bit in the Boot Hill section of Missouri. And specifically Um, in Mississippi, it was in the Delta? It was in the Delta, that's right. But then there was backwater flooding that would inundate east of the Delta. Um, Almost 700,000 people were displaced, about 550,000 of whom were African American. 
And the death figures are very unclear, but it may be as many as a thousand. People estimate between a hundred and a thousand. And then, of course, the sugar crops and cotton crops were lost for the year. And there were 149 Red Cross camps throughout the lower Mississippi Valley. Was it the flood then, that led to the migration to the north for African-Americans? It contributed to it. I mean, a lot of the migration had started earlier in part for industrial jobs leading up to World War One, But there was another kind of wave of out-migration during and after the Mississippi flood of 1927. The subtitle, A Cultural History. When does the cultural aspect cross that threshold from a natural disaster? I think the first thing is that it wasn't a natural disaster. It was really a man-made disaster. And it was particularly Southern white editorialists who made that clear. What became interesting to me, and this is something I think all of us have become aware of in the last 10 or 15 years since Katrina and through the various disasters that have happened since then, is that disasters are experienced live by a certain number of people, but they're experienced virtually now by the entire globe. The meaning of that event is really channeled through all those different media. So it starts as a very material event, but it becomes cultural immediately. In 1927, the newspaper was king. I mean, that's how information was dispersed. The perception of what happened comes through a newspaper. It came through the newspaper very much. And the newspaper newspapers across the country were all picking up the story and telling the same story, really one that was shaped by the Red Cross and by the Commerce Secretary, Herbert Hoover, who was in charge of flood management. And the story was one of it being a southern disaster, it being a natural disaster, and one that the North was going to save the South. The New York Times called the people who were engineering the relief an army of rescuers. Southern newspaper writers, particularly editorialists, took great issue with that story because they knew that the Mississippi River, it starts in the north and it flows to the south. And so that certain federal plans about how to manage the river and then a lot of environmental changes in the northern part of the watershed were effectively causing the great extent of this disaster. So southern editorialists, particularly in the commercial appeal and their cartoonists, represented as a federal flood almost that it was Yankee water, essentially, that was coming down and inundating sugar crops. The great song by which we remember this flood was written by Bessie Smith, and it's a blues song called Backwater Blues. And she, interestingly, had experienced flooding in much earlier stages in late December when Nashville was flooded. She was caught in the flood, and she was on tour at the time, and her railroad car passed over the flooding waters of the Ohio River Valley for weeks. And then she wrote about the flood in Philadelphia, recorded it in New York, and then those discs were down in the Mississippi Valley before the flood crest even approached the lower Mississippi Valley. So that's kind of an amazing story in itself in terms of how fast media had become and how slow this flood was. There were 75 different flood blues songs that were produced in the years following Bessie Smith. And then two major writers from Mississippi, Richard Wright was an 18-year-old living in Memphis uh, during the time of the flood and then spent the 30s writing a number of different flood stories, one of which is called Down by the Riverside. Faulkner was in his late 20s and living in Oxford at the time. 
And he wrote about the flood explicitly in a little-known novel called Wild Palms. But he also, if, if your listeners remember, as they lay dying, there's a major flood that happens in the middle of that novel. And then if you look at the novel he wrote in the year after the flood, Sound and the Fury, you begin to see water references, water bubbling up, people drowning, very much coming to the surface in that novel, uh, which was written uh, in 1928, the year after the flood. Well, we've just scratched the surface, so that should intrigue our listeners to read The Flood Year, 1927, A Cultural History. We've been speaking with its author, Susan Scott Parrish. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, Karen. Stay tuned to MPB Think Radio for local Mississippi-based programs all morning long. Coming up at 9 o'clock, it's Creature Comforts. Then at 10, MPB Season Pass. And at 11 o'clock, stay tuned for Southern Remedy. If you missed part of the show today, you can find past episodes of this and other Think Radio programs online at mpbonline.org or by downloading the MPB Public Media app in any mobile store. I'm Karen Brown. Join us again tomorrow morning at 830 for the next Mississippi edition. It's only on MPB Think Radio. As you watch a presidential transition, NPR News will be here with the facts to help you make sense of new appointments, new policies, and all the day's news. Listen every day. It's Marketplace Tech for Thursday the 5th. I'm Ben Johnson in New York. CES happening in Las Vegas this week draws a ton.